Every business should have access to high-speed internet, no matter where they are. But getting fast speeds in rural Canada hasn't always been easy, which meant less reliability, scalability, and connectivity. ExploreNet Enterprise Solutions has the network to help you do business virtually anywhere in Canada. With extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're bringing the high speeds of the big city to small towns, to tiny towns, and even no towns. No matter your business size or location, get connected today with ExploreNet Enterprise Solutions. Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices of women entrepreneurs in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, guests will speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. Each one inspires us all to take up space within our own communities and within the business world, reminding us that each path can be messy and unique. Join us on the journey, clearing a new path. Futures Network is a national initiative through the Canadian Partnership for Women and Children's Health, or CanWatch, and it connects national, regional, community, and grassroots organizations, agencies, and projects from across Canada. They are all committed to advancing gender equality and to ensuring equal futures for all. As CanWatch and Equal Futures Network CEO, Julia Anderson champions bold, innovative, and even disruptive approaches to advancing the health and rights of women and girls around the world. As Julia will tell you, the network started organically and has grown to over 400 organizations across the nation. Personally, this makes me hopeful we will soon move the needle when it comes to not just equality, but for justice for all, including in rural spaces. During our conversation, Julia's passion to be of service and provide a space for organizations that do good work is evident. Her enthusiasm is infectious and her hope for the future is palpable. She's a doer and she brings hope for Canadian women and girls in 2022 and beyond. Well, Julia, let's start at the beginning. What is the Equal Futures Network? Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and to talk about, yeah, this amazing project that really for us at the Canadian Partnership for Women and Children's Health uh, started pretty organically and has just grown uh, enormously. And we're so excited about the potential for what uh, what is the Equal Futures Network. So we at CanWatch, Canadian Partnership for Women and Children's Health, we're an organization that fo- focuses on 
enabling our members are 100 member organizations who are, you would know them, the Red Cross, World Vision, Care Canada. These are organizations who are based in Canada, sick kids who work globally on women and children's health. And we focus, we were focusing pretty exclusively on what's going on around the world, what are Canadians doing to enhance the rights and well-being of women, children, and their communities. And then we started to look at something called the Sustainable Development Goals, which are these globally set goals that call on us as Canadians to build what I call as the and bridge. So we need to be building these bridges between what we are doing around the world and what is happening here in Canada. And we really took that quite, we took that call to action, I guess you would call it from the sustainable development goals. They call it universality really to heart. And we said, what can we do to connect the work of a rural immigrant serving organization to the organization that is in let's say rural Afghanistan, that's working to get women and children potentially out of the country. How can we connect those two entities? How can we work on and think about the issues that connect us rather than always thinking about us and them? And so that's where the Equal Futures Network was born. It is now 400 plus organizations strong. These are 400 Canadian organizations who believe in the rights of all, uh, the rights of women and children, but they're really the rights of all. And they're looking from an intersectional lens. They're looking at everything from race, class, um, divides, the way in which we all experience this country in a very different way. And they're trying to connect into that big global story. So that's what the Equal Futures Network is. We try to be a, a helping hand to those organizations, those businesses, supporting them to do their work really with the, the ultimate goal of advancing the rights of women and children and bringing a more gender equitable lens to this, this amazing country that we live in. I have goosebumps as you speak about it, because really it has been a lot of people working in silos uh, and not being able to connect with one another and not realizing someone else is doing something similar and in almost setting up a competition almost, right? right. There's only so much funding to go around. There's only so many projects that we can work on, but working together, what a, what an amazing thing that you're doing. And, And the fact that it's grown organically, if there's anyone listening that is an organization, they simply need to contact you to get, to get to be listed as part of the, the network, correct? That's right. They give us a bit of information. We want to know how, your organization or your business is advancing gender equality in Canada. And then, yeah, you submit your information. It's free. It's a, there's no cost to be involved. Um, and once you submit, you also go on what's called the, the, the map, which is really, yeah. uh, we're trying to get at that, that vastness of Canada and also the vastness, the equal vastness of this movement. And we want to try to picture that and give people access to the resources and 
give people access to one another. We don't need them to connect into us. We need them to connect to one another. And so all your information goes up on the map. Um, and that's a, that's a platform in and of itself to share your work and share what you're doing and look for, search for organizations that are like yours that are in different communities across, across the country and across the globe. And I, I, for me, that's a really important piece of this is that we are trying to situate the gender equality movement with an intersectional approach within this global movement, because we believe that there's huge, rich learning uh, from an organization in Saskatchewan to an organization in New Brunswick. And the potential of that huge learning grows exponentially when we connect them to an organization in Zimbabwe, an organization in Tanzania, an organization in, in Thailand, right? And so that's the ambition of this project. So no, no small ambition, but man, is it exciting to watch it unfold. Well, so how long has it been in existence? That that came to me too, because I actually don't know. How long has this network been in operation? So CanWatch as an organization um, has been in operation only five years. Uh, we had we were kind of an informal organization before that, uh, but we've been in existence five years. And then we launched the uh, precursor to the Equal Futures Network in advance of Women Deliver 2019. So that was a huge global conference took place in Vancouver. Lots of things took place on that conference stage that were really important. And so we said in advance of the conference being hosted here, countries kind of bid to get, it's like bidding for the Olympics to get women deliver to come. So we put together a group of folks to bid to get women deliver here in Canada. Once we got it here, we said, okay, well, what what does the movement want out of Women Deliver? And so we we put together something called the mobilization, the Women Deliver mobilization. And that was the precursor to the Equal Futures Network. So that started in 2019. Uh, but really, this network was born in earnest in 2020 as, as the Equal Futures Network. I'm just so inspired by you and your organization and what you're doing. I think it's incredible. And I think it's incredibly important. How about you personally? How has your professional life led you to this exciting time? Well, I I was so excited to be on this podcast because I'm from Northern Alberta. And uh, uh, what we call, we thought of ourselves as the city folks from my family, because my family is incredibly rural from towns smaller than 500 people in Southern Alberta, but we were the big city folks, but in the town of Grand Prairie, which was at that time, 20,000. So, uh, you know, that, that to me, uh, that was the big city. And we drive five hours down South to, to go to Edmonton to do some shopping and things like that. And that was our big city experience. But, you know, I, I came from that kind of background, a rural family, a farming family, you know, grandparents who were pastors and, and, uh, traveled around the world, uh, in what they would consider sort of doing mission work. And I was really inspired early, very from an early age by this notion that we are part of this global community. And, you know, their perspective was we're part of this, you know, spiritual, religious, global community. And that for me was really the the birthplace of my interest in doing just in, in being part of something that was bigger than my small town of Grand Prairie, Alberta. And I, I think I wanted to study and understand what was going on in the world. So I came out uh, from Alberta to Ontario to go to university at a small university here. And the rest is sort of, um, the rest is sort of just a trajectory trajectory of different opportunities, taking advantage and, and looking at 
yeah, where I want to be. And, and can watch is such a great fit for me personally. I'm so, so grateful to be here because we don't do the work. And I think you'd probably understand this a little bit because of, from what I read of you, we don't do the work. We're not at the front lines. We are not building the wells and getting, you know, operating a women's shelter. But I fundamentally believe that connecting the organizations who are doing the work has the power to, and without that, we can do nothing. With that, we can transform the world. It's those, those interconnections, those relationships between people and being a platform to tell that story of connection and collaboration I believe is just so incredibly important. Sometimes you feel too far removed. You know, at times I'm like, man, I just, I just want to be working somewhere where I can really see and hold on to that tangible story. And then I remember that if, if we're not telling that story and we're not telling it as loud as, as humanly possible, the organizations doing the work, they need the space and time to just do it. What they need from us and what my contribution is, is that microphone, passing over the microphone, letting them shout it from the rooftops. This is what we're doing. This is why it's important. And and I think there's just an incredible power in that. And I think it also takes, you know, I think about my team members and it just takes a certain type of individual um, to stand that far back and yet be so committed and so passionate and so excited. Yeah, I would definitely say that's how... I feel as well, uh, Julia, is I would just much rather hear other voices that haven't been heard um, because we've had our time. We've had our time. With that in mind, what are your thoughts on women and Canada's recovery? There's been a lot of chat about that. and We're going to hear a lot about that moving into 2022 uh, and beyond. What do you think women's part is going to be both from an economic level and a socioeconomic level? I think the pandemic has been really quite heartbreaking and illuminating and exposing all these cracks and fractures that many of us, myself included, really for a long time had the had the privilege to ignore. You know, this was not the experience of many, many women and gender diverse people. They they didn't they knew the reality of inequality. They understood in in a deeply personal way the realities of inequitable inequitable world, the world in which we lived. But the pandemic has really, I think, um, it's like it's it's poured paint into those cracks and all of a sudden we can see it in a really new or all of a sudden more can see it in a really new way, I guess is the way I, I would put it. So I think, you know, there's been a lot has been said about the setbacks for women. I can't underscore in my own personal and professional life, the ways in which the world reverted to like a 1950s housewife <laughs> Uh, you know, traditional gender <laughs> roles. And, and it was just, I, I spoke to so many women and I I've done panels and I've engaged with, you know, the experts, the people thinking about this. And we all just sort of shook our head. Like really, we thought we were better than this. We didn't think the chips would fall this way. And there was an, uh, a real, feeling at some point in the pandemic that am I the only woman who is feeling like I'm going to have to quit my job? Am I the only woman who is feeling 
And then you look at the statistics and you go, no, 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 like more women than men by far have left the workforce. More women than men by far are seeking out, you know, very serious mental health supports because of the stress and the trauma that has been created through this pandemic and the uh, disproportionate burden that they've had to take on for the care of their families, children's communities and the health. And that's happening. I mean, there's global solidarity in that. That is happening all over the world, that the burden of care that we talk about is disproportionately falling on the shoulders of women. So when I think about when I think about Canada and I think about what are going to be the necessary steps to recovery, to any recovery, we're not talking about an equitable recovery. We're not talking about, we're talking about what are the steps to any form of recovery? The situation and the numbers and the statistics around women must be put at the front of the line, must be put front and center. Obviously, to get any sort of equitable recovery, that has to be the case. But I actually think to get any sort of recovery, that has to be the case, right? Like we can't eliminate half the population, half the population from the workforce and expect that we can especially because so many of these positions are the lower paid precarious positions. You're seeing it at the grocery stores. You're seeing it at the fast food restaurants. You're seeing it. We don't have people to work. And that's because women are not working. Women are not showing up for work because they can't, because they don't have childcare, because there's too much uncertainty because, you know, so what's the pathway out? I think the the recent announcements on childcare are a really strong step forward. That's been called on by the movement called for by the movement for a very long time. I think we need to take into account employees and staff as whole people. This kind of old patriarchal way of working where you show up at work and you do work and then you go home and do you. No, that's that's not a thing anymore. Um, we need to recognize that, that women are carrying a disproportionate load of home care. And therefore, if the Omicron variant, you know, explodes and all of a sudden we're thrown back into lockdowns, what's a, a centered and equity centered approach from the employment side of things. And that doesn't, that means if you're a McDonald's employer or if you're in the not-for-profit sector or the for-profit sector, how are we paying more attention, keeping our ears to the ground? These are the things we're going to need to think about. And I really do think pile on the investments in women entrepreneurs, pile on the investments in getting good internet access to rural communities, pile on investments, like all the places, all the gaps that we know are holding people back and that that are kind of spoken about when we're speaking about inequality, pile resources there and the rest will work itself out. My grandmother used to say, focus on the edges when you're cleaning mm-hmm. and the middle will work itself out. Everyone just, you know, you're sweeping a floor <laughs> and you focus on the middle. She said, focus on the edges and the middle will work itself out. You'll never miss the middle. And, and that's exactly, that is the path out of our recovery. Focus on the edges, focus on the most marginalized, the middle will work itself out. I love that. That's an amazing analogy. And uh, if she if she's alive today, I'd love to meet your grandmother. Sadly, she's not, but she uh, uh, she would appreciate me using her cleaning advices <laughs> for, a, <laughs> a, for an analogy on this, this podcast. Well, and I really love the... Um, the paint in the cracks analogy as well. I think that's so powerful and so visual. I think we can all imagine that. You mentioned rural communities and there's also the question of diversity and the talk always in the media is 
of the urban centers moving out to the rural areas for safety and for lots of other reasons, quality of life that we all know that we have. But our communities aren't making it welcoming, uh, in my view, uh, and that's my personal view. And we have diverse people in rural spaces that aren't being connected. And we work in silos, and, and, and you have created a network. Your organization is connecting people across Canada. And I wonder, how can we ensure that diverse folks in rural spaces, in particular women, and, and I'm talking about women with disabilities, I'm talking about trans and lesbian women, uh, I'm talking about Black, Indigenous women of color. How can we ensure that those folks are welcome, connected, and validated in their community? I know that's a, a big question, but I, I'm interested in your thoughts. And I think it's a great question. And I'm, I'll say something maybe a little bit, if you follow charitable work, a little bit controversial, which is I, I think you fund organizations. I think you create and fund organizations. And there's there's been a, a real wariness in the global giving community, the global funding community, and that's from government right down to individual donors, this notion that when we fund organizations, we're wasting money. When we fund people to sit in and do a job and be in a position um, that we're wasting money, organizations whose mandate it is to connect people, the welcome centers, the community centers, whose explicit mandate it is to make connections amongst people. And they can have, you know, they can have kind of caveats on that around special emphasis on uh, BIPOC communities, special emphasis. These are, I think, more necessary now than they ever have been in the history of humanity. And that, that I think, I believe is because some of those traditional institutions that were that in rural communities, churches, you know, um, religious institutions um, are no longer as viable. And so you have to, you have to think about if I walked in, you know, 50 years ago to, or, or I can just think about when we moved from Saskatchewan to Alberta when I was young. And like the first thing my family did was we, you know, found a church and that's, that was, became our community for, for my entire childhood and, and the decades after, as you see a decline in the church, um, you, we've got to think about how we're replacing that fabric of communities. And I think the way to do that and what the government as a, as a kind of with a mandate, the government has a mandate and municipal, provincial and federal governments all have a mandate to create a country that we want to be in. And that includes this beautiful thing called diversity. And that includes diversity everywhere, not just downtown Toronto and, and downtown Montreal. That is totally unfair that they get the benefits of these rich, vibrant communities. Mm -hmm. And then the rural communities don't don't uh, don't get that benefit. Don't get the benefit of immigration, the amazing skills and expertise that people bring into communities from other places, right? Like this is a benefit that should be shared. And in order for it to be attractive to people, 
I think we need to have organizations. We need to form organizations, have organizations and financially really invest in organizations whose job it is to welcome people and create the connective tissue between people in communities. We have a great center here in Peterborough, Ontario, which is where I'm located uh, now, by the way. I don't think I've said that on the the traditional oh, lands no. of the Mississauga and Ashobe. And uh, yeah, mm. we're, we're, you know, a small, smallish city in, uh, in Ontario. Um, and we've got this great uh, new Canadian center. And I was speaking to the executive director recently, and he was saying, you know, my job isn't just about resettling immigrants and refugees into Peterborough. That's part of my job. But my job is to really connect and create a welcoming community that people can see the benefit and reap the benefit of this rich and diverse set of skills, set of life experiences that these refugees and immigrants are bringing to the Peterborough community. My, my job is to make people feel so profoundly lucky that our community is growing in this way. And I, I just thought, I know it's totally out of style to say we should be funding organizations and institutions, but man, I want one of those in Grand Prairie. I want one of those in, <laughs> you know, every small town, a few people yeah. whose job it is with that, to have that in mind. I love that. And, and, and I thoroughly agree. And, and I'm going to take this on um, just myself. And it came from the executive director of the Pillar Nonprofit Network, which is close to here in London. Majde Cox said, it's also about radical accountability. And, and so what that to her meant, and, and, and I agree, is that we actually have to own that we have enjoyed a privilege that maybe we didn't realize. And then once we can own that in a, in a rural community, we can move past it and say, okay, let, let's get educated from the people who have been oppressed and, and let's build a community together. If we could do that in the short term, man, what, what we could do in the long term with your welcoming communities, I have a lot of hope. Let's put it that way. It's about connection too. And your yeah. organization is, is about connection. How do we create almost the wisdom of circles? So women sitting in circles across the miles. Your organization is almost fully remote and was before the pandemic. So how do you as an organization, a national organization, create that connection? Because I think that's, all, that's a challenge for all of us. We have been operating as a remote organization since inception. So uh, since uh, I've been with the organization for five years and we committed to a virtual workplace. And I think some of the strategies that we've used, which I think are really have been really important to us and I think do have lessons that can be drawn from kind of movement building. We use our cameras. We like to emulate the feeling of being in the same room with one another as much as possible. So we try to remove the things as much as we can that are are special to a virtual environment, which there's some controversy with, right? Like, you know, staff will say, I don't want to be on my camera all the time. And and we say, no, the benefit of being able to see each other, to be able to look at each other's faces, we invest in, in the best technology we can. 
We pay for people's internet service, which means paying way more in the rural areas, which most of our staff live in rural, (laughs) non-urban centers. And we say, no, keep your cameras on. So we we want to create that. We create space before and as part of every meeting to check in with how people are landing, uh, to check in on them personally. And we circle back on those things. So if I get, if we're doing a go around at a staff meeting and someone says, ah, I've really been struggling with whatever. And, and, you know, I've been struggling. I guarantee two or three staff, other staff people are going to circle back to them and say, what's going on? Tell me more. How can I support you today? Mm. And that's built into the way we run our meetings because we leave 20 minutes at the beginning of a meeting to go around in a circle (laughs) and we keep our cameras on. And if you need to step away to go to the washroom or fill up your coffee, you keep your camera on just like you would in a room. You wouldn't, put on an invisibility cloak, right? And walk out of the room. No, you'd walk <laughs> yeah. out of the room and people would know you're gone, right? Like we try to eliminate the kind of mystery. It's like, no, this person is not, they're not doing their emails. They're not doing something else. They're really super engaged and they're looking at their camera. They're listening they're nodding along. Yeah, we have one staff who who's mic, something's wrong with her computer and her mic keeps coming on, but it's hilarious every time it happens because She's so actively listening and you can hear it. She's like, mm-hmm, oh yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah. And normally she has her <laughs> mic off, but it's happened a few times. And I'm like, that that does capture the essence of what we try to do is that just like if you were in a room to get across that warmth. So when you start at, at our organization, you have a water cooler chat with absolutely everyone on the team. And you're supposed to talk for 20, 30 minutes about things not related to your job, not related to work. That gives you the foundation the next time in your meeting I get to say, oh, Shauna, you were talking about your cat and just remind me what what the cat's name is, right? It gives me a foundation, a personal foundation that we would naturally get. To me, it's just about when you pick up the phone, when you start a video call, you tend to be very purpose-driven, which makes it a very efficient yeah. workplace because you're you're calling about something. You're not just running into some, someone, right? You're calling about something. So we actually have to intentionally set up those systems that are uh, that would take place unintentionally in a workplace. So it's like, we are intentionally saying that everyone is going to share how they're landing here today and you can pass. Obviously you don't have to say anything, but you know, it's that, it's that notion that that's not a waste in a can watch meeting that 30 minutes of our go around is not a waste of time. That is absolutely the critical fabric of how we build the, the culture of the organization. Um, and we do occasionally bring people together once we used to do it twice a year, pre-pandemic, we're going to try, we're going to have some small get togethers and then hopefully a full team get together in February. And I think that's really important too. I would never, when I do movement building work, when we're working with equal futures network, yeah, we connect together virtually, but we're also as much as possible going to get accessible plane tickets with childcare, with the kind of supports you need once a year to get you in a room together, right? Like that to me, yeah. having both is the really the best of both worlds where you can meet on a regular basis with people from all over the world by the power of Zoom. And then you can every once in a while come together and, and you know, give that handshake, give that hug and really dig in and again, strengthen and reinforce that fabric. I could listen to you talk forever. I, I got to tell you, um, I, I really enjoy, am inspired by what you're doing uh, with your team you. and, and with the organization. What's your hope 
for the future? And again, I know that's a big question, but but maybe we can start with 2022 and then and then beyond. My hope for 2022, I, I'm really profoundly moved at this moment by vaccine inequity. I know vaccinations are controversial, but around the world, people want vaccines. And the difference between, if you just take the people who want them, the difference between those who want them here and those who want them in other countries is one of wealth, privilege, and the deepest and I think largest moral failure that we've experienced as a a global community in the last hundred years. We are all participating in this profoundly racist, profoundly unjust moment in history. And my, my deep hope for 2022 is that we look with a, an amount of guilt and embarrassment and shame at 2021 and our lack of action on vaccine, vaccine equity, and we fix that problem. We say, you know, whether it's for self-interested reasons or whether it's for whatever, we say, no, this isn't okay. This isn't okay for humanity. And I am them. And, you know, a grandmother taking care of her orphaned grandchildren who were orphaned by the HIV and AIDS pandemic should not die of COVID when there's a vaccine available. So my hope is that we're going to wake up as a global community and just kind of go, oh, that, that let's, let's consider 2021 a big mistake. And going forward, we're going to solve this problem that was completely within our reach to solve. Oh my goodness. It's so within our reach to solve. Just give the vaccines to the countries who are asking for them. That's one hope. The, the second hope is I really hope we can move beyond conversations about privilege and equity and inequity and move into a space of action. And I think people mm. don't act for a whole host of reasons. They're worried they're going to do it once you're kind of become aware of things, once you're, the glasses are peeled off and you start to see those cracks. If you're a per- person who has experienced, as you talked about privilege, people can really get kind of stuck in inaction because they're afraid of doing the wrong thing. And I just, my mm-hmm. hope is that we really, through connecting organizations that are doing the work, amazing actors who are so open and so profoundly interested in connecting to anyone and everyone. I hope that by creating those connections, we really create the space for action. And that, you know, we spent a couple years in our houses, not connecting with people and not, you know, engaging in society in a way that was meaningful or satisfactory. And I hope that as we move back out into we in Canada and around the world, because my hope for vaccine equity will come true. So we'll all be moving around about in society in a more <laughs> free way. And as we do that, I hope that we can really move to action on some of this equity agenda on all of it. Like, I just want to take it all on. I don't have to look far into my own network of 400 Equal Futures Network members to believe that that's incredibly possible. Powerful words. Thank you so much, Julia, for joining us today. Uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope we speak to you again soon. I would welcome the opportunity. Thank you so much for having me. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate it, and leave a review. 
It really helps others find us. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm. And the music branding is by Imagine Dev Studios. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Temp Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to this studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie, Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. We will speak to many people across Turtle Island, and as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of Indigenous communities and reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth for the opportunity for love and connection, and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time...